0: This is the Great Human Chronicle. I am Anvik. Zero. Preface. In 1926, industrialist and automobile magnate, Henry Ford and his wife discovered an old building outside Stirling, Massachusetts that was being used as a barn and garage by the local church. This building was now defunct and irrelevant But the couple soon found out that it used to once be a school for young children. This small encounter in 1926 started a series of events that ended with the couple buying this non-existent school and publishing a book together. This book by Ford had nothing to do with cars or the production line. It wasn't even necessarily for people who are really into that sort of stuff. It was for children or at least people interested in the lives and education of children. The book was a manifesto about the origins of one of the most famous stories of all time, a story about a little girl and her pet lamp. Mary and her little lamp is a nursery rhyme you first hear in, well, nursery. A story you learn so early in your life that you don't even really question the whole best friend sheep dynamic. But apart from being a story about a girl and her school-going pet, it is also a marquee symbol of American literature, alongside being a casual participant in a technological revolution, and the story at the center of a much larger story, involving lies, warring towns, patriotic writers, and an automobile tycoon writing children's books. My name's Anvik, and this week on the Creatium and Chronicle, we're going to look at the fraught and oddly eccentric story behind one of the most famous children's poems of all time. This is the story of the real Mary, the real lamb, and the war it started. Oh, and just for fun, I googled sheep facts and clicked on the first link that popped up. So I'm also going to give you the top five sheep facts you need to know by the end of this episode. Let's get started. One, sheep like goats have rectangular pupils which means that they have almost a 320 degree field of vision. For reference, humans have about 180 degrees. You know, every once in a while, you get a character like Sarah Joseph Hale in history, who's just everywhere. There are some people who find a way to be a footnote in almost everything that goes on at a certain point of time. Lord Byron is an example of this, one moment he's in Greece, the next he's writing romantic poetry, the next his daughter is working with Charles Babbage and it's like Jesus Christ dude you're almost never the main story but boy do you show up everywhere. Point is Sarah Joseph Hale was that sort of character. She was an activist, a writer, a poet and an editor. In some ways, she was the editor. She was the editor of the ladies magazine America's first periodical published exclusively for women. And through her work for the magazine, Hale became one of the most influential people of the 19th century. She was the OG influencer. Her magazine exercised influence over a demographic that was so severely underserved that her views on politics and literature and lifestyle defined opinions for an American society that was in transition. Her columns covered everything from women's education, to home medicine, to child-rearing. Hale was a remarkable woman, who did a lot when she should have been able to do very little. But despite all her work, it wasn't like she was the archetypical rebellious proto-feminist. She wasn't a feminist from today. She was a woman who was very much of her time. This is partly why she's so easily forgotten today. She wasn't feminist enough for today's world. And even back then, her work largely reflected the ideals important to a specific type of middle-class white family. She wanted women to be educated, for example, but she also wanted them to be domesticated and take charge of the domestic sphere. She was also very American, like very, very American. She helped preserve George Washington's memorial and part of her pitch for educating women was that they could help raise patriotic children. She spent a lot of time encouraging American authors, both men and women, to publish in greater volumes to compete with English novelists. As editor, she would review these books to spread the word about them, and she rejected the very popular practice of illegally publishing European novels in America. Today though, Hale will not be remembered for her hot takes on home medicine or her reviews of American literature. She will instead be remembered for two things. The first being her 17 year long effort to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. For those 17 years, Hale wrote to every president and leading politician, urging them to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. Back then, it was a festival only celebrated in the northeast of America. In 1863, Lincoln finally institutionalized Thanksgiving as a national holiday as an attempt to help a country post-civil war de-stress, making it only the third national holiday after Washington's birthday and Independence Day. For this, Hale was known as the mother of Thanksgiving. But that is also not the reason why we're here. The reason we are here, and the reason we remember Sarah Joseph Hale, is because in 1830, Hale published a book titled Poems for Our Children, a book that was and I quote designed for family Sabbath schools and infant schools written to inculcate moral truths and virtuous sentiments. Basically it means it was used to trick children into learning morals through poems. Hidden between these several poems that have been forgotten today was a poem about a little girl and her pet lamb. Poems for the children is the earliest written source we have for Mary and her little lamb. For this reason Hale is universally credited as the author of the poem. And this is where the story should have stopped. But obviously, we're here because it doesn't. Two. Sheep have excellent sense of smell. They have scent glands in their eyes and their feet. A few hours away from where Sarah Joseph Hale lived, there is a small town named Stirling. In the 1800s, there lived an old lady named Mary Sawyer who, if you asked, and only if you asked, would tell you a little story from her childhood. The story begins on a cold morning in March of 1815 in Sterling, Massachusetts with the nine-year-old Mary who was out to help her father feed the animals in the barn. And after feeding the cows, she noticed that two lambs were born in the night, but one of them had been forsaken by its mother. The poor lamp was weak and couldn't get up, but Mary noticed that it was still breathing. Barely breathing, but breathing nonetheless. Mary begged her father to let her take care of the lamp, but Mary's father resisted. The lamp was about to die and this was natural. Sheep often let go of some of their children. That might be true for sheep, but Mary wasn't going to abandon this lamp. She was adamant and eventually her parents acquiesced. She took the lamb home and nursed it for the entire day and at first the sheep couldn't even swallow. She had to work hard to get it warm and she wrapped it up in cloth and spent the entire night next to a fireplace because she thought the lamb would need the warmth to recover. When she woke up in the morning, she found that the lamb could now stand on its own. From there, the lamb grew quickly. learned to walk and run and do all the things a little lamb could and should. And it also became incredibly attached to Mary. It would run to her whenever she called and followed her all around and in return, Mary was like a mother to the animal. She washed it and fed it and combed its hair. She would even dress it up like a little doll sometimes. On the fateful day, Mary was about to leave for school when she realized That she hadn't seen the lamp that morning. She called out to it and the lamp recognized the voice and ran towards her. And it was then that Mary and her brother Nate decided to let the lamp follow them along. The siblings and the four-legged partner reached a high wall that they had to cross. They somehow got the lamp over and the lamp kind of understood what was going on. Because once the lamp had been brought down to the other side of the wall, It waited patiently for the two siblings to cross over. After which, the three were off again. When Mary entered class, she put the sheep under her seat and asked it to be silent until the end of the day. Once again, the lamb kind of understood and kept quiet for a long time, until Mary had to get up and recite something in front of the class. When the lamb realised that Mary was gone, it panicked. It started bleeding and ran to Mary who was mortified. But the teacher, Miss Kimble, simply laughed at the whole situation. And the students followed suit until everyone was laughing while young Mary was embarrassed. She took the sheep out into a shed until the afternoon when she took it back home. That day, the classroom was visited by the nephew of a local minister, John Rolston. Local minister, isn't the religious ministers, uh, not government ones. And Rolston found this whole situation very amusing. The next day, he rode by horseback to Mary's farm and gave her a piece of paper with 12 lines written on it. The 12 lines went, Mary had a little lamp. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamp was sure to go. He followed her to school one day. That was against the rule. It made the children laugh and play to see a lamp at school. And so the teacher turned him out, but he still lingered near, and waited patiently about till Mary did appear. Rolston died when he was studying at Harvard at the age of 17, and with it so did any evidence of the original poem. The piece of paper that he gave Mary was also lost, so we don't really have any proof for this tale anyways. From what we know. Mary herself told this story only to a few friends and small gatherings as a cute little memory from this old woman's childhood. But then something happened that changed this forever and made her a national icon. That something was... Public restoration? 3. Sheep can self-medicate. They can figure out how to use plants for their health and use them even if they don't eat them. In 1872, Boston went up in flames. The city saw its largest ever fires. Till date, it ranks as one of the costliest fire-related incidents in all of America, which admittedly is a very American way of understanding damage. Adjusted for inflation, almost $1.5 billion worth of stuff was lost in those 12 hours, and large swaths of property was also destroyed. The damage was so huge that Boston spent a considerable portion of the next decade recovering and rebuilding. And one of the buildings affected was the old South Meeting House. A popular building that was going to be demolished in the aftermath of the fire. To prevent this, a series of fairs and exhibitions were held to raise funds for its restoration. The officials at the fair wanted to engage children in order to engage their parents into engaging their money. And this led them to Mary Sawyer or now Mary Taylor. Every day, the 70-year-old Mary would go and enter a side room in the church and tell her story to children, after which she would give them little knots of yarn from a pair of socks she knitted as a child using the wool from her famous lamp. This marketing scheme worked wonders. It is estimated that hundreds of dollars went into the coffers of the fair from this daily recital, and eventually, these efforts were a success. The Old South Meeting House was the first ever significant public building in America's history to be preserved in this way. 70-year-old Mary's life had also changed forever. For the rest of her life, she stuck to her story about being the original girl from the poem. And she claimed that Hale had found the original 12 lines of the poem and added the 12 lines of her own later on. At the same time, Sarah Joseph Hale has also struck to her own story about the origins of the poem. She claimed that she came up with it on her own and had no knowledge of any pre-existing poem. And the thing is, there is no real proof to back Mary Sawyer's claims about the poem. But the people of Sterling, Massachusetts have run with this claim ever since because of their pride. And they've built monuments to almost will this story into existence. This story might have not been true back in the 1800s, but there is so much retrospective proof that while Hale is still largely credited as the author of the tale, here the story has grown in influence over time. Both women died swearing absolutely to their versions of the story. For Mary, this was John Trollston's poem that Sarah Joseph Hale found and added models to. While for Hale, this was a poem she wrote all by herself. For the most part, I think it's safe to say that the three-year-olds for whom this poem was written do not care about its origins. But in 1926, Years after the death of both these ladies, one man did. Ford, Sheep do not have teeth in their upper front jaw. We're back where we started. In 1926, Henry Ford and his wife came across the Redstone School where Mary Taylor grew up. A few miles away from Stirling, Ford owned the Wayside Inn in Sudbury, Massachusetts, and he saw a business opportunity in this school. He bought the school from Stirling and relocated it to Sudbury near the inn. And the school was then reopened and acted as a tourist attraction for the inn. A year later, he and his wife published an authorless book titled The Story of Mary and Her Little Lamp which gave Rolston full credit for the first 12 lines of the poem and he also built a statue outside the school to give people a reason to come to the school. This book is not very good. I read it. And it's just a book of propaganda. It spends a lot of time trying to prove that Mary Sawyer's version of the story was right using hypotheticals and other hypotheticals based on this hypothetical. It's just weird man. Fundamentally, what the book asked was, why would a respected old lady like Mary Sawyer lie and repeat a made-up story for her entire life? The only problem with such sort of arguments is that That same sort of question can be asked the other way around by the people of Newport, Massachusetts while defending Sarah Joseph Hale. Why would a woman who spends so much time fighting against plagiarism and piracy lie about a nursery rhyme? There is this other argument that Sarah Joseph Hale found the first 12 lines and then added the next 12 and made it her own, but it doesn't really add up because The book argues that Sterling and Newport are relatively close by and saw this unpublished poem travel 90 miles apart and reached her ears. But 90 miles is a long distance for an unpublished poem to travel, especially a century before Henry Ford popularized the automobile. If you were cynical like me, you'd believe that Ford took this old woman's fond memories and tried to use it as a marketing scheme. And for better or for worse, it worked, kinda. Today, Mary Sawyer's version of the tale has only grown in stature, and the goose chase behind the lamp has only thickened. 5. Sheep have great memories. They can recognize up to 50 other sheep faces for almost two years. What you heard just now was a digital recreation of the oldest sound ever recorded in the English language and the voice you heard was Thomas Alva Edison, who had just invented the first device in the world to record audio, the phonograph. It may be unclear what he said, but the words he said were, Mary had a little lamp, its fleet was white as snow. thing with children's stories is that they hold far more value than any of us give them credit for. The simplicity is the lie. There is a complex world hidden inside these simple stories that children are able to unpack and make their own. We latch onto these stories and remember them for years. These stories become part of culture and get parodied over and over until they are the culture. Mary and her little lamp is easily America's premier contribution to children's poetry. There are hundreds of important nursery rhymes, but there are only 60 to 70 that are popular enough for them to even be parodied once and still be recognized. Because a parody implies that there is a general awareness of the thing. Out of these 60-70 though, only 20 out of them are truly part of popular culture. And out of these 20, only one is really American. Which I guess is fitting considering how patriotic Sarah Joseph Hale was that it is her see rhyme that made it in in the end. The reason that there are so few American poems there is fairly simple. Most children's stories are far older than America as a nation, which simultaneously proves how incredibly young nations are and also how old children's stories can be. Out of the 24 lines that Sarah Joseph Hale or John Rolston or Mary Swyer or whoever else wrote, only the first 12 are remembered. Yet, behind each verse is a story that is far more quintessentially American than anyone would realize. This is a story of American capitalism, patriotism, individualism and a country's rise to global influence. Even today, there are people in Massachusetts who argue for where the lamp came from. And honestly, after spending three weeks reading everything I could about it, I still don't have an answer. But I do know that The Lamb will live on, through our stories and our rhymes. The Lamb will be here when I'm gone. The uh, first words I spoke in the original phonograph, a little piece of practical poetry. Mary had a little lamb, it's sweet quite as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the Lamb was sure to go. Hello, I hope you liked that. Uh, This was surprisingly interesting uh, to research, because every time I would research something, something else would come up, and like, no, this is a lie, and then you'd find out something else that this is the truth, and then you'd find out that that truth was also a lie, and and it was fun it was a very interesting project to work on i hope you liked it uh i hope it made sense because there's a lot of moving pieces in this and a lot of time traveling because technically if you think we started out in the ni- 1830 went back to 1815 then we went back to 1809 then we moved ahead to 1870 went to 1926 then back to 1830 there was a lot going on and i hope it, all of it made sense um oh and the edison thing as well but Apart from that, uh, if you did like it, uh, please rate and review it on the Spotify app and on the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, you can always follow us on Instagram at Create Human Chronicle. Where there's a- Have I mentioned I put out content there every day almost? It's a little incredibly, a little incredibly great. See, this is how hard it is that I can't even speak anymore. Uh, that's it. Uh, <laughs> rate and review the podcast, Apple iTunes app and uh, Spotify app. And I'll see you in two weeks. Bye. This episode of The Great Human Chronicle was written, directed, produced, researched and performed by Anvik Singh. The music in this episode is by John B. Lind, Etienne Roselle, Gavin Luke, Joseph Falkinson, Aver, Infinity Ripple, Bond Fields, Blood Red Sun, Sinder and J.F. Kloss. Thank you so much for your time, your energy and your attention. I'll see you in two weeks.